Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is a recording of a live event that we held at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin. This is our fifth year doing this, so thanks to Neshota House for hosting us yet again this summer. And it was a lot of fun to see some of you out there and just to have a live event where we could gather and talk uh, together before and after the episode and also have a great conversation. And this conversation was with Drew Johnson about his book, Biblical Philosophy. So it was fun to join with Drew as a co-host and interviewee about uh, that book, which was uh, a fantastic time together. Thanks so much to Ed Hackey for producing the show and to Rebecca Terhune for all her work with marketing and media and for getting the event uh, set up at Neshota House. And uh, thanks to all of you who support us through donating monthly. Uh, if you'd like to become a contributor that way, you can do so at onscript.study forward slash donate. And as a reminder, we have another podcast called Biblical World, and that podcast features episodes that look at the history, culture, archaeology, and geography of the Bible. And it's been really fun to see that podcast take off and grow and develop, and we've got some really interesting episodes. So check it out wherever you listen, or you can find us at onscript.study forward slash biblical world. Okay, enjoy this episode. I want to introduce myself. My name is Dr. Jim Watkins. I direct our distance programs at Neshota House. Uh, Folks who have come out for this live podcast, we are so glad that you're here. I know some of you have traveled. Uh, Where's Kevin? Kevin, raise your hand. Kevin, props to you coming all the way from Chicago, Wheaton area. Glad you're you're here. uh, Who else is from Chicago? We got, oh, another, oh, awesome. Well, thanks for making it all the way out here to Neshota House. We are like so glad to have you. Uh, And Neshota House is really excited to host the doctors, Matt Lynch and Drew Johnson for their live on script podcast. I think the conversation is going to be very interesting. It is about Dr. Johnson's new book, Biblical Philosophy. And we have a few copies that you can purchase, I'm told, at very deep discounts. So talk to Dr. Drew Johnson later if you're interested in his books and also another book, Human Rights. So I think we're going to do a podcast. There will be a time for a Q&A at the end. Um, but I just want to say how thankful we are that you guys are here doing this this evening and we're really looking forward to it. So please give your attention to Drs. Drew Johnson and Matt Lynch. So I, I just want to welcome everyone. It's really good to be back here in Shota House. I think this is our fifth year doing this. Uh, we did it three years in Shelton Hall, and now this is our second year under the, the tent, the tabernacle. So uh, it's good to be back here, and a uh, real privilege to be here with my friend and co-host, Drew Johnson. So welcome, Drew. Thank you, Matt. Um, so we are here to discuss his, your book, uh, Biblical Philosophy, a Hebraic Approach to the Old and New Testaments. Um, in addition to being an OnScript co-host, uh, which some, some people call him the weak link, but I think that's unfair. Um, so I just want to say that. I don't think that's fair. Thank you, Matt. Um, uh, but in addition to being a co-host, Drew is Associate Professor of Biblical and Theological study, Studies at the King's College in New York City. He's also the director for uh, the Center for Hebraic Thought, uh, and he's the host of the Biblical Mind podcast, so he, uh, he's a, a dual podcast host. Uh, he's written eight books, including Knowledge by Ritual, Human Rights, The Power of Rituals, um, Habits and Sacraments. Sorry, I cut off the title. Uh, before that, he was a high school dropout, uh, a punk rock drummer, combat veteran, IT supervisor, and pastor. Drew, welcome again. Uh, so, so, Drew, is that Drew, uh, D-R-E-W? Whatever you like, Matt. Okay. All right. It's your world. I'm just swimming um, in it. Uh, do you want to fill out the, some of the details of your background just to give people a sense of where you're coming at 
Um, I think you have a, a different story than a lot of academics, so I'd love to hear about how that plays into who you are now uh, as a scholar and, and as a Christian. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I come in academics, uh, like a lot of people who are surprised, sorry, I'm getting attacked up here by one particularly vicious fly. Um, I, I come to academics like a lot of scholars, uh, backwards falling into it. I didn't plan on necessarily um, going to seminary ever. I didn't plan on working in theology or biblical studies. So it's mostly because I became a Christian when I was around 20. It was about my third year in the military. Um, I had a radical conversion, as they as they call it. Like I, I tell my students, um, it was like the Wizard of Oz going from black and white uh, to color, uh, that kind of experience. And then uh, I was actually going to study research psychology. That's, that was my goal, is to go into a PhD program in psychology. And a friend of mine said, I think you should go to seminary instead. And I, and I was like, what, what, what's a seminary? What do they even do there? Uh, and he said, they talk about everything you love to argue about. I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's, uh, you have my attention. Uh, so I went to a seminary, and uh, I did. I loved it. I was, as soon as I started, I was happy that I kind of switched over from psychology. It was a natural fit. And then... Um, and I was at seminary with a lot of mature Christians, and I was a fairly immature uh, Christian, an immature young man, uh, newly married. And uh, But the one thing I realized is they all spoke this weird language where they all knew what each other were talking about, and I had no idea what they were talking about. The, they spoke this theological dialect, they spoke Christianese, all these things I just didn't really quite know what they were saying. And so that that I originally spent a couple of years thinking that uh, that was a deficit, um, but after a while, I saw that as a benefit that I that I had the opportunity to come to the Bible and theology fresh. So I was telling some people today. I remember reading Matthew for the very first time and finishing it and going, "That's interesting." Okay, I th I thought I'd heard some other stories about Jesus, but I guess those are just made up or something. And then I started reading Mark, and I was like, "Wait a second, this is the same story." And I called this guy. I'm like. Did you know Matthew and Mark are the, basically the same story? He's like, well, you got two more to go, right? Um, and I, you know, in, in many ways, having that kind of alien approach uh, into Christianity, the church, and, and biblical studies, um, I think allows me to ask questions that sometimes people aren't thinking of, um, and that sometimes that's productive, and sometimes it's not. So that's uh, that's been my edge, and I love teaching Hebrew Bible. I, I love teaching. Uh, Hebrew Bible that think the New Testament is the scripture of God's people, uh, and uh, and because it's, it's so easy to break people's brains in the in uh, the Hebrew Bible. Fantastic. Well, yeah. um, there, there's one way of talking about our academic journeys that focuses on like what school you went to, what oh, books you published. Is but, that what you were looking no, for? No, no. What, I, what I'm wondering <laughs> though, if you, if you could reflect back on y your journey, what are some of the formative conversations hmm. that help shape your move toward, you know, you ended up writing several books on epistemology. How did you land there? What were some of the conversations that, that put you on that path? Uh, so I went to Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis because I lived in St. Louis. I think it was the only person from St. Louis that went there in my class. Um, and they're like, why did, why did everybody come here? And they're telling their stories. I was like, I live in Maplewood and it's really close. Um, but I had the uh, the providence of God, he put this woman, Esther Meek, in my life there. And uh, I was interested, actually, it turns out, psychology I was mostly interested in because of research methodology and statistical analysis. Um, so I just was really interested in how scientists are so confident about what they know. And so I got to Covenant, and Esther Meek is a Polanyi, a Michael Polanyi scholar. And so I started reading Polanyi immediately, and then later got to know Esther. Um, but people on the campus were reading Polanyi, um, and that blew all my doors off, right? I was like thinking about science, the world, everything in different ways. Um, sorry, what was the question? Uh, formative conversations. Yeah, formative. So, that, so I got to know Esther, and uh, anybody who's heard or read or met Esther knows that she uh, will not leave you undisturbed. She is the Socrates of any room she's in. And so it just one, it spurred me on. Uh, I had also a, a systematic theology professor there named Michael Williams, who most people don't know, but um, he was also a Vietnam vet, became a Christian from atheist family in a foxhole in Vietnam, and, uh, and also a high school dropout. Um, but he's one of the smartest people I've ever met, and he kind of took me on. He saw that I was rough-edged and needed some help. And so he really uh, took me on as a project. Uh, I might have been more than he thought he could handle, but... Um, 
And then uh, by that time, uh, I was starting to think about questions of philosophy. And I, w I did a, an MA in analytic philosophy after my MDiv when I was working as a pastor. And, um, and I realized philosophers were not, I'm, I'm so glad that happened in that order. I did the MDiv and then, then did the MA in philosophy because I realized philosophers were not asking any different questions than the biblical authors were exploring. And, um, and actually in the philosophy department, they weren't so averse. They were all atheists, the professors there, or most all of them. And they weren't so scared of uh, the Bible as an intellectual world. They were just like, yeah, yeah, okay, there's Chinese intellectualism, there's Indian philosophy. So yeah, maybe there's something going on with the Bible. Um, and I, I just found nobody was really working on this. And so I was like, oh, there's something I can do. And um, ended up stumbling backwards into a PhD program at St. Andrews. So you've been on this path for a while. Yeah, since probably like 2003 is when it kicked off. And, and you've also spent a good amount of time thinking about the importance of rituals and how they form us as knowers. Mm -hmm. um, and we're here at this place in the Shoda House where uh, that, that fosters a kind of knowing through rituals. Um, so what roles do ritual play in the development of knowledge? Fundamental, I guess, is the short uh, short answer to that question. That knowledge is ritual, um, so they I don't think they can be separated. Um, so I would say, uh, it, for me, it was an important task because obviously, you know, when you read systematic the theology and you kind of learn about the philosophies of the world and philosophical theology, you come up through the Greco-Roman system, um, which also talk a lot about ritual and how the body and <clears throat> is involved in knowing, but they, they tended to always put everything located in the soul, right? Um, and I noticed, A, the biblical authors don't do that in the Old or New Testament, uh, and B, uh, quite honestly, as, as a combat veteran, I did not see heavy combat. I saw like minor combat that made me poop my pants and that was it, right? I, I, every taste, of, you know, I really wanted to get in the stuff until I was in the stuff and I was like, I went out as quickly as possible, right? Um, but I think anybody who has had any traumas in their life uh, realizes that your understanding of the world is inextricable from your embodied uh, practices and, and the experiences that happen to you. And so I think that just made it like, it was a non-negotiable conversation. Like I just could not believe that there's anything that we can know that isn't somehow related to our embodied practices or experiences. And so then for me, Polani became a, a voice of someone crying in the wilderness saying, uh, yes, and as a chemist, as a scientist, uh, coming out of modernism, we I can tell you how this works. Well, you, you mentioned Polanyi a couple of times, yeah. so maybe uh, if you could provide us with a sketch of why his thought was so important to you. Yeah, so Polanyi comes out of um, uh, the early 20th century, and he again, he's a research chemist. He worked on fiber, x-ray, uh, x-ray of fiber systems, and um, he was, you know, he's in the top of his league. He corresponded with Einstein, and Einstein thought that his ideas were pretty good. Um, so what's, that's got to be worth something, yeah. But he was reading these modern, and uh, these are the caricatures we can work now, the modernist, scientific, positivist, you know, we're going to quantify everything, we're going to put everything in matrices of deductive knowledge, and we're going to figure out how the whole world works through kind of physical inductive, or uh, sorry, deductive systems based on inductive data that we collect out there in the world. We just not need to tighten up all the processes and get it all right. And Polanyi's just like, yeah, that's not how science works. Like I'm a working scientist in a, the lab of labs. Like I work in chemistry where they have high correlational coefficients. And that's just simply not how scientists come to know things. They come to know things by intuitions, working in communities where they trust each other, often blindly trusting each other because they're colleagues who have a, the same skills and abilities to see things that others can't see. So this kind of like, oh, a scientist um, looks at things objectively, and that's the goal is to be clinical and objective. He's like, no, because I'm passionate and because I can, because I'm biased, as Gadamer would say, because we're biased to see things in a particular way, I can see the world chemically in a way that you can't see it because I have these skills. So a productive bias. A productive bias, yeah. And as soon as I started reading him, I was just like, why have I never heard this before? And, um, you know, I, I know lots of working scientists, and if you ask them, how are you confident about what you know? They, they will almost regurgitate word for word the old modern scientific positivist view of science. And then you say, yeah, you know no philosopher of science thinks that that actually is how you come to know things, right? For like 75 years, nobody has thought that. And they'll say, well, what do people think? And I'll just lay out Polanyi for them. And hands down, every single time they're like, 
oh yeah, that's, that's actually how it works, right? And so even for them, it's very liberating uh, to hear this story and, and to not be trapped. They're like, yeah, I knew something was not right about this, collecting facts, putting them in a pile, and then sifting through them to figure things out. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, when someone finally gets a diagnosis uh, of a lot of amorphous systems, they're like, ah, yeah, that's it, that ties it together. So uh, I want to shift gears to your book, Biblical Philosophy, a Hebraic approach to the Old and New Testaments. And it seems like this book brings together and advances a lot of your earlier work in epistemology. So what is it that you hadn't yet said that needed to be said um, or articulated in this book? Um, so a, a friend of mine uh, spurred me on to, to write this because it's a quite audacious claim. And it's essentially that the Hebraic tradition in the Hebrew Bible that extends into the New Testament is, um, is a philosophical tradition. It bears all the genetic markers of a philosophical tradition when compared side by side with other philosophical traditions. It does many of the same things. It does them differently, but we can trace those genetic markers. Um, and uh, and, and th there's lots of insights here that I was even surprised as I found out about how ancient Near Eastern scholars feel about this that most Old Testament scholars were unaware of uh, from what I could figure out. Um, but I make that, that claim that the biblical literary tradition is a philosophical tradition because it advocates a particular way of understanding the nature of reality. Um, that I've never made, like even saying it now, I'm like, oh, okay, I stand behind. I did write a book, so I feel like I have something to say, but it, that even feels very tenuous to say that out loud. And uh, because it advocates a particular uh, way of understanding the nature of reality, be, you know, but what do I mean by that? Well, understand the nature, to go philosophical, understand the nature of the chair apart from any chair in this room, right? To understand the nature of justice apart from any act of crime or punishment, right? That there's some principled understanding. Um, and you just don't get this in the Mesopotamian literature. You don't get it in the, now the Mesopotamians and Egyptians certainly had abstract thinking, but you can't tell from reading their literature uh, that they were, or it's very difficult to eke that out. And you turn to the Hebrew Bible and it's every page, they're doing some kind of abstract reasoning. They just do it very differently than what we have considered philosophy, which is the Greco-Roman watermark that's, that's needs to be usurped. So, so what? give an example of that distinct way of knowing so we can put some flesh on, on this idea. Okay. Um, I mean, actually, the reason I deal with a lot of scientific epistemology and philosophy of science is because I think science is actually a good working model for how we know things well. And, you know, I have an iPhone in front of me that is engineering payoff to that, uh, that gives evidence of this. But that you have a community of people, again, who have a shared understanding that can be disrupted, right? So it's, we're talking about conspiracy theories. Right? So that's a community of people with a shared understanding, but it has to be disruptive. It has to, they have to have defeasible beliefs and understanding of the world. Um, do you want the genetic markers or? Let's, let's talk about a worked example and then we'll back okay, up to okay. talk about those genetic markers. Yeah, so if you, if you think about, um, I really hope the microphones are picking this up. <laughs> the fans of Onscript have just gone crazy at this point. Like, yeah. they just can't get enough. That's paparazzi. So do you want to, I guess, do you want a theological example or do you want a parallel example in uh, well, our world? Well, an, an example from scripture of, oh. of that distinctive way of coming to know or that, that distinctive way of abstract okay. reasoning, mode of abstract um, reasoning. So we could uh, say something about, I, I go to Sukkot because that's an easy one, right? So it's communitarian. It can't be known by any one individual. What's Sukkot? Oh, Sukkot. <laughs> the Feast of Huts or Shacks um, that Israel is commanded to keep every year. And the instructions are, you shall dwell in shacks, right? You're to make and dwell in shacks uh, so that your generations might know that I made you uh, to live in huts or shacks when I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is taking part in a larger, larger scheme of things that they're to understand about the relationship to creation, to empires, to God himself, and to each other. Um, but these are not uh, uh, menial things. They're not, you know, we might say, oh, these are religious or spiritual things, but it actually is, they're meant to be the paradigm of justice for the world, and justice in the sense of looking out for the vulnerable, advancing God's program in the world. So they need to understand a lot of things. And this is one element of that. And the interesting thing about Sukkot is it actually says so that your generations may know that I made you to live in huts when I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And you're like, well, okay, 
what's the easiest way for somebody to know that? Like for my kids, right? You can imagine sitting around the dinner table. Hey, kids, just so you know, when we came up out of Egypt, God made us live in huts and our kids would go collectively. Cool. Right. And then move on. Um, but it says that you have to do this with your children. You have to embody this process in order to see what is being shown to you. And I think what's important about that move is you all, it's all in the plurals here. Y'all have to do it. You have to recollect, you have to interpret what has happened. You have to revisit history, you know, but, and by revisiting history, your rear view mirror becomes your headlights that you can see properly what's going on now and what's in front of you. And that, that the community has the right uh, to shape that knowledge as it goes and say, this, this either fits with what happened with us or this is out of the bounds. So Cora and his, his band of brothers try to come in and say, no, 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 you've messed up holiness. You've understood it incorrectly. And God definitively answers, um, like in that instance, and, and Moses even gives all the epistemological language. If, if God does something do, uh, new, then y'all shall know, right? That, I, that they despised Yahweh. They've despised his teaching, his instruction. And it wasn't me. Um, so this kind of communitarian, we're in this together. We can only know, like no individual can know what you need to know in order to uh, participate in the empire of God and the cosmos correctly, that it's always in community. Uh, it's always people who are wise, who sharpen those who are, are not yet wise or are on their way. Um, and that these are the things you need to know so that God, I mean, in the old Testament, we can say so that God doesn't kill all y'all. Right. Um, and, and which becomes increasingly difficult as you move to the back of the history of the old Testament. Right. Uh, and God does end up killing almost all of them, uh, uh for the sake of the paradigm of a just community that he's building. So it's, it's not just that they act in just ways that they have list of things that are just and unjust. It's that they have to understand the nature of justice because they're going to be presented with all kinds of novel situations in which there's no answer for what justice looks like here. They have to wisely apply the skill of discerning justice uh, as a community. And they're not punished for individuals doing unjust acts. They're punished as a community for not stopping injustices and not uh, flourishing justice in the land. So you say in the book that uh, there exists in Christian scripture a Hebraic style of raising abstract questions and, and reasoning through them and offering distinct answers to those questions, which is kind of what you're getting at here with um, talking about the Sukkot example of embodied communal knowledge. Like there's a kind of there's a kind of knowing that happens by living in that tent for a while. And that wouldn't otherwise happen, right? Yeah. Is that is that Cannot kind of the, happen otherwise? Yeah. yeah. And so, is there is there a way in the Old Testament of speaking about just pure informational knowing? Like, I mean, can, is there does it have to be embodied, or is are there kind of varied forms of knowing? Um, does it have to be embodied? I can't think of an instance of of knowing or understanding that is not. Right. Like, so if I could just get one counterexample on the table of disembodied knowing, I'd be happy we can move on. Um, but I'll just put it this way. As far as I can tell, the biblical authors, Hebrew Bible and New Testament are completely uninterested with anything we might call disembodied knowing or knowing qua knowing apart from being situated in our body. And, and, and by that, I, I mean, even abstract thoughts like the nature of triangularity or, or the nature of numbers, right? So in philosophy, I learned you have to run everything through philosophy of math if you want it to stick with philosophers. And so there's, there's grand debates amongst philosophers of mathematics, uh, even today, like this kind of idea that there are platonic numbers, like three is just threeness in the heavens or secured in the mind of God. Um, I, many philosophers of math are just like, yeah, that's, that's not, and that's not how it works. Neuroscientists who study how we come to know things mathematically are just like, no, that's not how the body works. That's not how people acquire mathematic knowledge. Um, it was a just so story when, when Plato was telling it, sorry, I've heard there's some Platophiles in here. It can't be helped. We're in the West. Um, but, um, but that was a just-so story that made sense within that particular context, but that's just simply not how, uh, how it works. And I think the Hebrew authors are, are hip to this problem early on and are selling us on an embodied, critically real understanding of the world. You, in your book, you outline two distinguishing features of Hebraic mode of argumentation. Um, so um, that knowledge is networked and pixelated. And I'm wondering if you could explain those two concepts. Um, 
So I struggled endlessly to find the right words here. And I still, as you said them, I'm like, darn it, I didn't quite find the right words. But uh, networked is, well, in this crowd we could say, or for the listeners at home, intertextual might be the closest word, but it's more than intertextual, right? So that when they're- speaking about networked now. Yeah, sorry, networked is more than intertextual, thank you. Um, So that when the biblical authors develop a, a discussion on an abstract topic, they're going to use literary tools to make sure you see how these are connected. And I was sitting in your class today and I saw how you were exploring some of those networks, right, uh, of thinking and how they're using certain key terms. Sometimes that even seem like very bland, ordinary terms, but they're, they're actually highly loaded, um, which philosophers love to do that today. They take very ordinary terms and load, this with, load them with all kinds of meaning um, and make them hyper-technical. And the biblical authors are often doing something like that. Um, but they're networking them together in order to kind of, the, the pixelation part becomes, uh, and the first one I used in the draft copy was pointillistic, but everybody was like, what is pointillism? I'm like, you know, those uh, Surat paintings, right? Uh, where you, no particular point on your screen or on your, on your iPhone or in maybe a pointillist painting, no particular dot means anything, right? It only gains meaning as you step back and see how all the different dots are related to one another, right? So there's an inherent and invisible networking of those dots together that we use in the visual field, right? So the, there's a visual networking of those together. The biblical authors are doing this constantly and uh, often there are overlapping networks, right? So you hit certain stories. I, in my hermeneutics class, I had them doing the Abigail story with David uh, and just the many different networks that come, you know, that sometimes pile in and come into one little nexus point there. Um, and so the question then becomes, well, how do you know that you're tracing the right networks, right? How do you know you're not making all of this up? And so I, I try to be very careful to develop a methodology that things have to pass a test, a smell test, and then some actual uh, light statistics, light Bayesian models uh, before we can say this seems to be clearly something the author is not just throwing things out. They're talking about this topic. They're persistently developing this topic. And this topic is relevant to this abstract idea that they're trying to develop across text. So in other words, whereas in maybe, a, let's say, a Western philosophical system, you would take a topic, focus on it, develop it in a linear argument, and that's the way you do philosophy, whereas the biblical writers are, they are taking a topic as well, but they deal with it um, situationally in various points along the way and assume that you're going to create the picture in your mind to connect them. It's a map of breadcrumbs. If anybody knows The Office, they go Robert California on this, right? Like, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you another story. Let me tell you another story. And then the fourth story, you're like, wait, do these have anything to do with each other? Uh, And at some point, again, it looks like fuzz on the screen, but as you back out and as you listen closely for the structures of their thinking using the language and literary tools, um, you should see structures emerge. And anybody who's done work in the Gospels, like I did work in Mark's Gospel, um, and like you can read Mark's gospel and just say, these are a bunch of slapdash stories. And that's what a lot of people do at first, right? And then the more and more you look at Mark's gospel, you're like, wait. Uh, so the metaphor that gets used amongst Mark scholars is interwoven tapestry. Mm-hmm. But if you just had somebody read Mark and say, this is interwoven tapestry, they would read it once and go, yeah, I don't see that. And I'm like, okay, well, let's read it again and, and see the pixels and how they're networked in these very sophisticated ways. It, it reminds me, and you have to tell me if this is a, an example of that. So in the, in the book of Proverbs, um, we were talking about this in class briefly this week, um, the way that Proverbs treats subjects is by, you know, it, you'll have this little two-line proverb, like the, um, the wealth of a person is a wall of protection, the poverty of the poor is their ruin. Okay, so it takes the topic of wealth and it, want, it does want to address this larger subject, but it just gives one little angle on that subject. And in that case, poverty is, can be ruinous to someone, and, and wealth can be a wall of protection. But then it comes at it again, like four chapters later, and says, the wealth of a person is a wall of protection, like a high wall in their imagination. So then it comes at the topic of wealth and says, okay, it, it also can be a false sense of security. And then it'll come at the topic again. So it keeps, but it's but it's all over the place. I should in the have book. used this example in the book. Yeah. I, it's it's all over the place, but it is assuming you're going to put the pieces together yeah. to gain a more nuanced and sophisticated understanding of wealth and the way it works. And even there, you're assuming that 
Deuteronomy in the background, right? Yeah. Deuteronomy 28. And mm -hmm. in, in the days when in, when you're in your high-walled cities in which you put your trust, I'm gonna oh, besiege yeah. you with the besieging of the besieging, right? Yeah. Um, so there's this long conversation that's been going on for a long time. So I, you'll notice in the book, I don't talk about wisdom literature at all. Yeah, I was, right? I was gonna ask about that. So a book on biblical philosophy, zero wisdom literature, folks, right? Uh, because I was like, that's the low hanging fruit. If we can demonstrate this in the, in the narrative, the law and the poetry of the Torah and then the gospels and, and Paul, which Paul becomes kind of the litmus test for all of this, because everybody thinks Paul is this Greco-Roman Stoic. Um, then, then the, the, the case is strengthened. Um, it, but I think Proverbs is a perfect example of pixelation. It revisits, revisits, and it, and it never, there's, I, I don't think there are many identical restatements. There are a few identical restatements or near identical restatements, yeah. um, but it's always a twist. Now I, I would, let's, let's bring the Greeks back in and just say, look, Aristotle taught us this. You define what something is in the abstract by its genus and its differentia, what it is, and but you also have to say what it isn't, right? This is the, the fields and fences. This, these are the kinds of things that live in this field. Here are the fences where you've crossed into some other field, right? So uh, I just wanna point out that, I don't know, depending on how you date things, many, many centuries before Aristotle ever took his first breath, you already had people who were doing intense genus differ differentia abstract reasoning. Uh, using both narrative law and even poetry to do that. So uh, you also talk about the logic of law, and I'd love—I don't know if you want to talk through an example or just what you, what it is that you're arguing with regard to legal reasoning and how it relates to narrative. I thought I found that section really interesting. So I assume you're talking about the kind of micro narratizing of law. Yeah, this is. Um, Ed, when you edit this episode, go back and put the right name in here. I don't remember her name, the scholar who wrote this book, but it was brilliant. Uh, and it's it's noticing, she was noticing that um, in ancient Near Eastern law code, there's this whole question as to whether anybody actually knew ancient Near Eastern law. Like Code of Hammurabi's, it's unclear whether anybody had access to it. Legal decisions in Mesopotamia never refer to the Code of Hammurabi. Um, off, often legal decisions contradict the Code of Hammurabi, right? So it seems to have been mainly a temple text or a scribal text. Um, so it's unclear how much these, these codes of law were actually normative for legal reasoning. But when you do look at them, you find very straight conditional reasoning, if X, then Y. And it's very plain, if condition X occurs, condition Y attains as, as a result. Um, you get the exact same topics in the Hebrew Bible, and they just very slightly reframe the way it's stated. Uh, and it's a very subtle, but I would say sophisticated move. If you see X, then you must Y, right? And what it does is it, may, it puts a character into the, the law where you are the character. You have a perspective. There's a setting. You know, if you see your enemy's donkey struggling under its load, then you must go help it, right? For the sake of the donkey. Um, that's a that's very different than the abstract, and we and we know in um, both legal reasoning and, and and studies on legal reasoning today, and anybody who preaches knows there's that decision where you just say like so if if we ever find if if anyone finds oneself in in somebody in a situation where somebody's suffering, then one ought to help, right? That's very different than saying. If God sends somebody into your life, now think about who that might be. Think about names that might come into your head, right? You must help them, right? Um, it creates a narrative and a conflict that you actually resolve. Um, Paul does the same thing in the New Testament with his teaching as well. It's not, hey, if you ever are served meat that's, uh, that's sacrificed to pagans, it's when you sit down, right? And the plate is set in front of you, right? So even those little, that little phrase that prepares you to enter for some legal reasoning about how to handle a tricky situation with meat idolatry, he's putting you at a table with a guest who is serving you. That's his entree into this legal reasoning. And, and what's happening there by doing that? Like what's, what, what difference does that create compared to you know, the ancient Near Eastern approach? Um, so it's taking abstract principles, right, that are being worked out and it's concretizing them. And then it's also putting them in the second person. Now, most of these are in the plural. Some of them are in the singular. Um, but it's, it's making you uh, the protagonist of a, of a very short story that you have to bring to completion. And if you know anything about, you know, if you want to like get your, if you have young children and you want to figure out like where they're at developmentally, tell them a story and stop at the, at the resolution. Like, right, stop at the climax and don't get to the resolution. And even young children, you know, two, three years old, they'll be like, 
and then what, right? Uh, and so it takes this abstract, hey, if this condition, then maybe somebody should do something or a strong version of that and turns it into you become the protagonist that needs to bring a narrative to a resolution. So I, I wanted to transition to speed round with All right. you, uh, quick fire. And, uh, but I have a kind of transitional question. I'm not sure if it's an interview question or a speed round question. Okay, I'm nervous. Um, so I have a quote, and I'm wondering if you can respond to it. Uh, what might a biblical author say to this, this quote from none other than Kellyanne Conway? And sh so she says, you're, quote, you're saying it's a falsehood. We gave alternative facts to that. What might a biblical writer want to say in response? Uh, this is a speed round. Yeah, yeah. I, I would go well, no, with... No, no, it's midway, so you could take a minute. Okay. I, I'm going to cite my new friend Travis Bott over there and just say, uh, no, that's just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do the words American waste control mean anything to you? <laughs> yes, they do. Could you, you, you want could more you, on that? Yeah, could you explain? Uh, that was the, uh, the last name of the band I was in in high school um, that was previously named Dog Bite. Okay. Uh, it was a... Uh, That's old, an upgrade. Old school tradition. So if you think punk, punk rock is Blink-182 or Green Day, then we're not even having the same conversation. Um, but uh, so this was in the late 80s. Uh, I was in a punk rock band and we toured the Midwest. Woo. Yeah. And it was called American Waste Control because we didn't like the name Dog Bite anymore. And we were walking to the store to get cigarettes and potato flakes, because that's what we ate. Not the cigarettes, the potato flakes. And, uh, and I saw a dumpster upon which it said the company name, American Waste Control. So if you Google American Waste Control, you will not find my punk band. You'll find a dumpster company. <laughs> Although I, we could put a link in the podcast to one of your songs that's on whatever, SoundCloud. Oh, you've, yeah, you've got, yeah. yeah. A, a friend, uh, the guitarist of that band who lives in San Diego has had a copy of our demo cassette for 30 years sitting in his truck glove box. And I was like, man, you got to get that digitized, which yeah. took him two I, I years was, to I was going to play a version of, I was going to play it for us, but I, I didn't, couldn't, it's couldn't sort out the... It the, sounds like it's been sitting in a truck for 30 years. Let's yeah. So, so if you had to inspire us, um, so all, I think all of us are probably up for a little inspiration, but you, you only could use lyrics from American Waste Control. How, how would you go about doing that? What, what might you say to us um, just using those lyrics? Uh, to quote Jay Wilson, our lead singer, mm -hmm. go away. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only lyric that comes to We did a cover of Sweet Leaf, too, by uh, Black Sabbath. Okay. On there, yeah. So go away. All right, that's inspiring. Thank yeah. you. Um, <laughs> besides American Waste Control, do you have a favorite punk band? I mean, the classics like Misfits and Minor Threat and um, uh, of course, of course. Uh, Black Flag, uh, the big ones. Uh, but No FX was a great California uh, punk band that kind of that everybody ripped off after No mm. FX was around and. But yeah, the, uh, just the good old stuff. Oh, uh, Cro-Mags, Age of Quarrel, one of my favorite albums, right? <laughs> I've been listening to it constantly it's recently. Got a Sorry, yeah. yeah. I don't know who that was, but I love you. Uh, knock, knock. Who's there? A broken pencil. I, no, no. I told you this joke when I interviewed you last time. Okay, really? no, okay did, sorry. did you really? Yeah, I did. Okay, well, let's go with it, because okay. I, I forgot that. Maybe it's a different joke. Yeah, okay. With a, a broken, broken pencil. Broken pencil. Yeah, okay. Wait, a broken pencil who? Never mind, it's pointless. Yeah, that was the same joke. Okay. <laughs> so, some people um, may have never met a true blue philosopher, so I think, I think this is a real privilege to have a real philosopher in, in the tent. You? Oh, um, I'm not a philosopher. Let's so be I, very I think, clear about that. No, I'm no, not no. A you wrote a book on biblical philosophy, so yeah. you are. So um, I, I think it would be a real treat for us to hear you philosophize. Um, so, hebraically? So just, yeah, hebraically. So I'm wondering if you could just philosophize for like 30 seconds. Like um, freestyle like, hebraic philosophy. Yeah, yeah. So you've got, you've got 30 seconds, so go. All right. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about Make it deep. A, a group of people who mm -hmm. cried out to God. And then 
Um, and then God heard and he saw their affliction and then he knew. And you're like, well, what the heck did he know, right? It doesn't say, it just says he knew. Um, and it creates this question like, okay, does God have a special ear for these people? Because we've been tracking them for a while and they're schmucky, but God seems to be into these people. And so you get to, uh, he, he actually takes care of them. He brings them out of a bad situation. He enslaves them as his own personal slaves. He transfers them from the house of Pharaoh to becoming his own slaves. Uh, but he's a good taskmaster. And then he instructs them on their way out from this oppressive slavery. He doesn't say like, hey, do good, right? Be, be good, like Bill and Ted, be good to one another. He's, he warns them with these words. In the days to come, if you oppress a foreigner or an orphan or a widow, uh, my wrath will burn hot and I will kill all y'all and make your wives widows and your children's, children's, chillins, orphans. Wow. Okay. Well, that's, that goes under the inspiring category. Um, um, and, and in what sense is that doing Hebraic philosophizing? Yeah. So um, I know this is not a speed round question, but yeah, just yeah. Curious. No, I'm, I'm trying to tie together what I see as an obvious literary network that's yeah. being built in the book of Exodus. That's picking up on things from Genesis and carrying it forward. Um, and it's answering this question, uh, it, it, this divine being has this has this issue of justice, but how particular is the issue of justice? Is it just, you know, as that uh, that movie God on Trial? If you've seen that, you know, the question that's asked in that movie um, it, is it that he's powerful and he was just on our side, or is he powerful and just? And I think Exodus 21 says no. He doesn't just hear the cries of the Hebrews; he hears the cries of the oppressed. Um, and, which means that he doesn't say like, go and be good. He warns them about what will inevitably be the temptation for them, uh, when it comes to carrying out justice. So it's, it's, it's taking a, a big lump of clay called this justice in the world. And it's beginning to hew out. Well, I guess hue is the wrong metaphor for clay, but, um, it's beginning to sculpt out, uh, what justice will look like in, in a, in a community of people who've experienced deep distressing uh, injustices and in the natural temptation to revisit those injustices uh, in future generations and all the various ways that they're going to have to keep the memory of this injustice in their community, not to cripple them or to traumatize them, but uh, to protect and, and create justice in the world. So you grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Right? And um, what's something uh, that you cherish about Tulsa. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, <laughs> um, Tulsa. The grid system, like you can't get lost in Tulsa. Okay. Because, you know, it's uh, north to south are named streets and east to west mm. are all numbered and they're all in order, alphabetical and otherwise. Mm. And every 10 blocks is a mile. You just cannot get lost in Tulsa. Okay. Well, that's... that's uh, Got something going for it then. Yeah. 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 Um, so <laughs> Tulsa is known for barbecue. And is, would you, is that fair? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. And, and some people, like people on Wikipedia, would say that it, its barbecue reflects its midpoint location, be, be, quote, between pig country and cow country. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, since it's between the Midwest and the South. So um, did you grow up with it? Do you have like deep barbecue commitments? Uh, I don't have commitment. I definitely, thank you very much. Uh, I definitely, um, so my stepfather was African-American. And so we didn't eat a lot of what you consider traditional Oklahoma barbecue. We had soul food, uh, which is the closest thing to barbecue. So I do definitely have some very strong opinions about soul food. Well, we'll go for it. What, tell us about them. Uh, uh, I, I do not like chitlins. Mm. <laughs> uh, hot link sausages like I don't know why but I'll eat those every day uh, I actually haven't had one in a long time so my GI might not be down with that uh, but yeah uh, Wonder Bread has to be served with anything barbecue um, yeah so thank you thank you um, and the peace be with you uh, so yeah so no I don't really have strong but we yeah we I love barbecue I live in New York City where there you can get good barbecue but it's very expensive um and you can get all kinds of Latin American barbecue, but you can't get that like Texas, Oklahoma. I thought you lived in Newark. I do. I live in New Newark, New Jersey. Okay. Um, uh, the home of, I don't, I don't know what's actually yeah, is there. I, I just learned today <laughs> from Drew that Newark is actually named after, well, it was called Newark because it's, it's supposed to be the new ark. It's a new ark of Christianity to save America. Yeah. It was yeah. meant to be a Christian city. Uh, so it's a new ark. It's actually two works. How's it doing at that? <laughs> 
it's struggling, but yeah. you know, it's, it's like there. every you know, people white evangelicals come into New York City and they're like, oh, Christianity is alive here. Tim Keller, blah blah blah, right? Mm-hmm. Hillsong. And uh, as my colleague Anthony Bradley will point out, it's like the church has always been strong in New York City. There's a ton of Christians here. There's a very high percentage of, of New Yorkers who are Christians. They're just not the kind that white evangelicals typically recognize. And I think Newark as well, you could walk around the city and be like, dear Lord, this is kind of rough, you know, but the, the, actually the churches are working hard there. They're just mostly African-American and Latin American churches that are doing 90% of the work of the gospel in those places. Hmm. Um, are you familiar with the Tulsa Sound? Uh, like T-Town? Uh, so it's, it's a, um, it, it blends rockabilly, country, rock and roll, and blues. Of, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering if, it, so if you have a favorite musician in that genre. I think we should clarify something about yeah. Tulsa right at yeah. this moment. Um, yeah. I lived there from zero to 17 years old, yeah. and then I dropped out of high school and left Tulsa and never went back. So I've been I'm, back I'm, for my 10th, my 20th, and I'm going back this year for my 30th yeah, high school. I'm trying reunion. to help you reconnect. Yeah, I appreciate it. But like I, yeah, I have faint, fading and faint memories yeah. of Tulsa, so... All right, so what's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? <laughs> in biblical studies, um, I think there is an inherently good research project uh, to the Bible as a whole, the canon as we find it in the Protestant canon, and, and including even the pseudepigrapha, the Hellenistic Jewish pseudepigrapha, um, that, that the provenance of those texts together, however you think they came about, I think that's an inherently interesting project, and I think... A lot of people, because of source criticism, dismiss that project. Uh, and I think often they dismiss it because it's confessional Christians want to do that kind of stuff. But I think there's actually a whole world there that can be tapped um, that gets sidelined because everybody's hung up on source criticism. So okay. I'd love to hear you. Uh, we, we just have, we don't have tons of time left, but I'd love to hear you talk through Mark's epistemology because I think it's a great example of how narrative epistemology works, um, which is a key part of your book. Um, saying that the biblical writers do philosophy through narrative. So maybe just talk us through a bit of how Mark works and how it's doing philosophy. Uh, So maybe just walk through the networks in the pixelation. Yeah. Um, So uh, I I pick up Mark. I mean, you could go earlier, but Mark 4 is a a seminal chapter because Jesus' attention turns specifically to the, the disciples at that point. And he focuses on them as developing them to see this, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. It's unclear what the mystery of the kingdom of God is at that point, um, but it's certainly something that is difficult to see because the disciples in Mark, if you take the short ending, never see it, right? They never get it. So there's something, he gives this parable, the sower, and he uses all this Deuteronomic language. Listen up, uh, hear, hear this. A man went out to sow seed and he tells this cryptic story about a guy throwing seed around in the different soil. The disciples come to him and they say, yeah, what, what was that about, right? Um, and uh, his answer to them is to quote Isaiah 6, the calling of Isaiah, which um, is really enigmatic, right? He, he says, uh, okay, for everybody outside, having eyes they won't see, having ears they won't hear, but for you, I'm going to give the, king, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And then, you know, let me explain this parable to you. And, with, and, uh, and then he explains it to them. And, and then and then he gives iteration. So thinking about Proverbs, how there's one version and then iteration, iteration, iteration. And with many such parables, he taught them as they were able to listen to it. And so you come through Mark 4, and the first thing you notice is that this verb, akuo, listen, is, is just used incessantly across that, that, that uh, chapter in ways that it's not elsewhere. And, you're, and you begin, it, so it should be raising this question, what's the deal with listening to Jesus? Aren't they listening to Jesus? What is listening going to do? And then you, even at the end of that chapter, they go out into the sea and there's a storm and they wake him up. And he calms the storm and their rhetorical question to themselves is, who is this that even the winds and the sea listen to him? Then he goes on to feed the 5,000. Um, but the, in the feeding of the 5,000, this is, you have this, uh, this network going back to Numbers 27 where he looks on them and has compassion on them like sheep without a shepherd. This is Moses appointing Joshua. So you, you already have this kind of transition of power, but it requires them to understand some things to be able to discern what's going on. And so the first test comes and you realize, oh, it's listening to Jesus means doing something, right? So um, the, the question of how are we going to feed all these people? And he says, you feed them. Now, I have no idea what he expected them to do at that point, right? Um, but he was clearly testing them. John's gospel marks this as he, he said this knowing what he would do to test them. But 
Um, what's interesting there, okay, so they, they don't know what to do. They end up sitting everybody down, feeding them there. You all know the story of the feeding of the thousands. Um, and then they get in a boat and they go across without Jesus. And then Jesus comes, in my mind, Nordic tracking across the lake, right? <laughs> and catches up to them. And this is the end uh, of Mark 6. And this is, this is where like everything should change for us when we're thinking about this program of getting the disciples to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. They see him Nordic tracking. They freak out. He says, do not be afraid, right? Uh, for they thought uh, he was ghost. And um, he comes in the boat. And I'm, I'm sorry if I'm butchering the actual text here, but it's, he, it says something like, and their hearts were hardened because, and here's where you should all lean in and go, what's going, what, because what? Because they did not understand about the loaves. And you're like, wait, what? Um, uh, A, you know, this cardia scleroma, this hardening of their heart that's happening there is already drawing your attention back to Pharaoh and to Israel and their obstinate state. And then, uh, and so you're like, wait, they're still hung up. I mean, Mark is intentional here. They are hung up on the feeding of the 5,000, right? It's, it, the pattern is not cohering for them. There's some kind of abstract concept that they're supposed to get their heads on. They're supposed to be able to skillfully discern it, and they, they're not getting it. So, so if I could jump in yeah, there, yeah, the, is the issue that because they didn't understand what Jesus was trying to teach them in the feeding of the 5,000, they were unable to discern what's going on with Jesus Nordic tracking across the water. Um, is that, is we that can the say idea? there's at least an implication of that at this yeah. point. Okay. Uh, it strengthens later because if, if you like the feeding of the 5,000, just wait, there's more, right? Um, and it, 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 Mark is dark comedy, right? It, it's just levels of absurdity. When I read this slowly with students, they're like, how have I never noticed this before? And it's like, me too. I had the same reaction. So Mark then uh, has Jesus later send out the disciples. They go out and they come back rejoicing, right? And, and the issue of who will listen to you, right? So you have authority and they have to listen to you and that's gonna be the indicator of where you should stay. They come back and you're like, great. He sent them out, they did the thing and they came back and they seemed to like get it, right? Just all you have to do is put them in a crowd of a couple thousand people again to see whether they get it. So it happens again, they have a couple thousand people Question arises, how are we going to feed all these people, right? And like the dope slap is coming here. Jesus once again feeds them. And then they get in a boat to go across the lake. And they begin arguing. Anybody know what they're arguing about at this point? Yeah, exactly. The fact that they only had one loaf of bread between them. Like this is incredible, right? Um, and so Jesus says, he pulls along this Ezekiel Isaiah thread and he, and he says, why are you arguing? Do you not yet understand? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you uh, not hear? Uh, do you not remember? Right? He's pulling all the Deuteronomic and Isianic language here together. Um, and, and then he forces them to remember what happened. Like how many baskets of bread were left over? And they're like, seven, you know, they, that's, this is how I painted in my, and then they go and you're like, okay, all right. He's working with them. They're kind of schmucks, but he's working with them. And then you get in the next scene. Who do people say that I am? Peter, you are the Christ. Okay. Because I'm the Christ. I must suffer many things. May it never be. Okay. And then, you know, Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him for his understanding of, of the Messiah. Right. Uh, and then he doubles down. He says, not only am I going to suffer, but you guys as well. And then this leads in the transfiguration. We'll leave it here, but brings, you know, all the imagery should be bearing in mind, coming up onto a mountain, the, the clouds descending. And, and interestingly, the language used from the Septuagint is not the Exodus telling of Sinai, but it's the Deuter Deuteronomic telling of Sinai. The clouds descend, the heavens open up, the voice of God comes down and he has one sentence to say. And this is where I'm like, we should listen closely when God just comes down and says one sentence, right? This is my beloved son. We knew that. Listen to him. And you're like, wait, how do we get this far years into the walking alongside Jesus? And they're still not listening to him. And at this point, if you thought listening to him meant like follow his rules or, or you know, merely like, hey, listen up. Now it's pushed us into this other domain that there's something going on with listening and doing that is meant to effectuate this understanding, this discerning, this ability to see, uh, to see things like the, this empire of God that he's bringing in is for Syrophoenician women. It's for uh, the blind, it's for the Samaritan, it's for others out, the, the thing they refuse to see, right? And they don't see it even into Acts and beyond, they have trouble seeing this. Um, although when the Holy Spirit comes, that's the big breakthrough is they finally see the kingdom of God includes all of these people. Um, 
so this is, you know, if you want to talk about like, okay, think about your typical biblical worldview training class, right? Where these are the facts, it's objectively true, and we need to defend these facts, and we need to know these things. And you get into this world of how we are to understand uh, within scripture, and we're not talking about facts ever. We're not talking about uh, information. We're talking about you need to be able to skillfully discern what is going on. Um, and like reading an x-ray, this is my uh, Michael Polanyi example, just it's not good enough to be able to understand what a collapsed lung looks like in the last hundred x-rays you look at. You need to be able to discern it in the next x-ray, right? And that's, uh, so uh, the biblical authors are going to call this wisdom, um, chokmah, and all these other variations of wisdom we have in the Hebrew, and then that one flat word we get in the Greek, Sophia, right? Um, but um, but the, so if you just take the word wisdom out and just replace it with skillfully discern every time, it won't always fit, but it fits a lot. And it gets you back into the, oh, they're doing things like scientists and doctors do. They need to be able to skillfully discern. And you do that by having an authority who guides you. You embody their words. Like just think Mr. Miyagi here. Uh, like they're going to ask you to do some weird stuff, right? That's part of the, the you don't, you know, like they're going to ask you like, hey, you feed these thousands of people, right? They're going to ask you to do wax on, wax off, all kinds of weird stuff. Um, but because you trust their authority, you inhabit their words, you embody them, and, uh, and you're able to then begin to recognize and hopefully later discern these patterns that emerge. And, and again, everything I just said, this is what scientists do. This is, this is how they make new stuff and how they figure out old stuff, uh, is they do this in community, trusting one another, even though they haven't seen for themselves 90% of the information they need in order to make these uh, assessments. Hmm. Yeah, it's a really helpful worked example using Mark. I, I, like, I like that because it, it, it gets at the sort of long journey that the disciples are going on. It's very encouraging, too, because... Being a disciple means a process of not understanding and coming to understand, you know, eventually. But uh, even that is a is a really rocky path. Um, I like the pun, like Peter. Yeah. Well, yeah. Good point. Um, so I want to I want to just pick up on one piece here uh, as we close close out. Um, our conversation. There's one other question I have as well. You, you say something that that will probably get some pushback from some readers. Um, you talk about Paul's style of philosophy being largely Hebraic, and because, but you say then because Paul's epistles are audience-centric, you know, he's speaking to his audience, the style is often garbed in Hellenistic philosophy. Nevertheless, the Hebraic style of philosophy is what drives the effort. So, I can imagine someone saying, "Well, isn't the medium part of the message as well? So, how can how can you separate what it's clothed in from?" the message, um, like, isn't form part of communication as well as content? So what would you say if someone's like, yeah, you know, you can't just relegate that to clothing of his language is actually part of the communicative intent as well. I I have to say that I I honestly feel like I get this aspect of Paul because I go through this every semester with students where I'm like, you're you're actually not ready for what the biblical authors are going to say. So when you get to Leviticus 18, you want to have a discussion about sexuality in the Torah like who amongst us actually has a sober enough sexualized mind to actually have a real Hebraic discussion about sexuality. Um, so I usually do a lot of like uh, detoxing, like here's how, you know, think about these ta- these names, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, transgender. Think about all these loaded concepts. Okay. Yeah. The biblical authors don't think about these ter- these issues at all in these terms. Um, and I think Paul has that same task. He's like, okay, I know this is the way you think about things. You're like, you think the stoicheia is it. That's like, that's the end, be all, end all. You think there is this particular way of tossing things around your head to achieve tranquility of the soul. And that's like a, a, the honorable, noteworthy goal. And he's just going to say, you know, he's going to use everything that I think that, you know, I became all things to all people. I, after writing this book, I took that line much more seriously because I think it becomes a throwaway with Christians uh, often um, that that he really does say, let me figure out how you need to hear this and then I'll put it in words you can understand. But let's just be clear. I'm not saying I'm not using stoic concepts because I think the stoics are right. I'm thinking I'm using Stoic concepts because the Stoics give us a good enough thing that I can then move you over to what the Torah has been saying for a really long time. Uh, Jesus does the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, my good friend Jonathan Pennington has written on this. 
uh, in his book, Jesus, the Great Philosopher, he shows, you know, one of the things he convinced me of is like, look, Jesus and Paul think the Hebraic philosophical system is powerful enough that it can go toe to toe with Roman philosophy and win and, and be better. Like at the end of the day, Paul's not going to say, yeah, Stoicism, it's good enough. Yeah, just do that, right? No, at the end of the day, he's like, that gets us kind of along the path. You're, it's not completely wrong, but here's the real stuff over here. Here's how you actually come to understand the nature of the universe. And here's where that system is actually going to distract you from these, these things. And so he has a very critical eye. I mean, you get the first Corinthians one and you have to deal with like his very sobering comments about philosophy. And I know a lot of people try to moderate those and say, well, he's not really talking about this, that, or the other. Um, I think if you look at what he's doing in Toto, just in the undisputed epistles, he, he really is doing a takedown job on Roman philosophy. So I'm sorry I have to say that. Yeah, no, that's that's okay with me. So we're at a time, we're at a time in the U.S. and elsewhere um, that some people call post-truth. Um, and knowing how to know is increasingly difficult, I think. Um, and it's not uncommon for even Christians to just lament the fact that how can we know what's real because of fake news and deep fakes and misinformation and so on? Um, so we can't really even know what's real and true. So what would you like to say into that environment that, and, and how does a biblical philosophy maybe help us not be so despairing? Okay. Um, I mean, what I would say in that circumstance, if I had somebody who was genuinely willing to go on the journey with me and, and me as well to discover, like maybe I've gotten something wrong here, but I would say, look, the fake news one is, is a great example because, okay, we, we have a scripture that begins in the Garden of Eden where quite literalistically, the story is there's a serpent who knows stuff that the couple doesn't know. Uh, he is right. So if you go through all the things the serpent says, not only do all the things he say, says, say, everything he says, says, thank you, come true, but the narrator is very carefully to use the parallel language of the serpent's voice uh, to show that they come true, right? So they, their eyes are opened. Um, they are like God, knowing good and evil, and they do not die in that day, right? And you can say, well, death came into the world. Fine, you're already massaging. Fine, I, I'll go with you down that road, but uh, the man dies 300,000 days later, right? So we're stretching the word of Yom there uh, as far as it can go. So what we have is, is somebody who actually knows what he's talking about. That, so that first line, he's the most wise uh, of all the creatures that God has created. That's actually a serious line. The, the narrator actually thinks that that is true. Uh, they're not just doing a puff piece. The, the serpent comes in, actually knows what he's talking about. And so he's not telling them something that's untrue, but they should not be listening to it, right? So if you think about the issue of fake news, it's not a question of whether the thing is true or not. It's whether the, 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 the source is not just authoritative, but authenticated to listen to. And so I would shift the conversation over like, A, the fact that the Hebrews are having this conversation uh, centuries before the Greeks are, right? Um, so it's not a new topic within the Greco-Roman system. And then B, they want to have this much longer conversation that says, who you listen to determines the, the kind of practices that you're going to embody, which determines how you are going to understand the world. Um, and there's been a lot of work on this in modern cognitive sciences, and Jamie Smith has written on this a lot from a neo-Augustinian view that, um, that works sometimes. But what they're doing is they're saying, like, look, they, they are hip to this issue of fake news. It's not whether they know it or not. It's whether they're authenticated to speak to you and that you, whether you should be listening to them. So I would shift the conversation of, we actually did a video series with a journalism professor at our school. So what should we look for in, in news media? Like, what are the practices that would authenticate them to us? Um, so do they have named reporters? I didn't know some of these things, uh, but our, one of my journalism professor, he, he worked at the Wall Street Journal for a long time. He's like, first thing, the website, do they name all of their, uh, their journalists? Can you look them up and find out who wrote these pieces? Uh, do they have a track record? Has anything they've written been retracted, right? Um, do they have a retraction page? Do you see edits at the bottom that this initially reported, but we've later found out that wasn't quite right? The, the, like the genuine attempts to have a real earnest uh, not objective, not clinical distance, uh, but a good, biased, insightful uh, approach. I used to work in counter-narcotics when I was in the military, and I was actually very impressed. You know, we were doing all covert operations down in Colombia and Peru, but I would read articles in the New York Times where, like, 
reporters basically figured out what we were doing down there. Uh, and it's just because they really knew the region, they knew the politics of the region, they would talk to people, and they would kind of piece together very closely. I mean, it was eerie. Um, and you know, you find out like, no, they didn't get classified information. They, they just uh, had all of these really good skills and biases that allowed them to see things that other people would have missed, and then they, they reported it. So I think, um, Developing relationships with particular reporters, and I mean by that, like listening to people. Like I know Terry Gross and Fresh Air, like the back of my hand, right? I've been listening to her for uh, almost 30 years, so I know when she asks wonky questions or questions, I'm like, "Come on, Terry, you know better, right?" Um, or I know why you're asking that, Terry, because you're from, uh, you know, you were born in Brooklyn, and I know that neighborhood, and I know where you're going with this, right? Um, but that kind of relationship with reporting, that it's uh, over time. Uh, over time and circumstance proves to be uh, true to reality. Not true, capital T, objective, capital T, objectively true on its own, but true to some reality. It actually has high fidelity. And this is what I call the Hebraic sense of truth. Uh, there is no such thing as objective truth, even though I know what people mean when they say that term, uh, but it's true over time and circumstance to what it purports to be true to. Well, Drew, uh, that's been a, a really helpful overview of what you're doing in your book. And I'm sure uh, we'll have a lot of questions and discussion that will come after this podcast. But I want to thank you so much for uh, speaking today about your book, Biblical Philosophy, a Hebraic Approach to the Old and New Testaments. And thank everyone for coming here tonight. So let's give a hand to Drew. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.